I knew it was a big deal that I was going to be the only one on the bridge. Like, I knew that. I asked friends because, again, I wasn't as much of a Trekkie as so many other people. And it was really friends who were saying, like, wait, what? Seriously? And I was like, yeah, like, look, there's no one else. I'm telling you. Hi, I'm Deborah Levin, and I played Ensign Lang on Star Trek Voyager, and you are listening to Trek Untold. Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week, we're taking a trip over to the Delta Quadrant, as we're chatting with a crew member from a certain stranded Starfleet space vessel. Deborah Levin played Ensign Lang in three episodes of Star Trek Voyager, including Blood Fever, Displaced, and the infamous Year of Hell. This gold-clad ensign was a longtime Trek fan before she ever put on the uniform for the first time, and loved every second she spent on that set of that very starship. Beyond her time in Trek, you'd recognize Deborah from her roles in Will and Grace, Unsolved Mysteries, Two Broke Girls, Boston Common, Married with Children, and How to Get Away with Murder. She's also got a few other Star Trek connections along the way, but you're going to have to stay tuned to hear all about those, including one with one of my favorite sci-fi writers of all time. Deborah's also a classic movie buff and really, really knows her stuff when it comes to the cinema. So we spent a lot of time just nerding up about great old films. And just as a side note, our discussion happened around the time when the TCM channel, or Turner Classic Movies, was going through a period of flux. But since we recorded it, all that seems to have been resolved with a fairly positive result. In between geeking out over black and white films and being on the bridge of a starship, Deborah's got a lot of great stories from many different sets, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing about them just as much as I did. I don't like to play favorites on this show, but this really was a fun one that you shouldn't overlook. So without further ado, let's chat with the Ensign who single-handedly protected the bridge from hostile aliens, among many other achievements, and meet the delightfully fascinating Deborah Levin. But before we get into this week's episode, I have to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media yet? You can find us over on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, all at Trek Untold, one word with no spaces. You can also become a Patreon supporter for this podcast over at patreon.com slash trekuntold. Here, you can directly contribute to keeping this show running at full power for as low as a few bucks a month. If you do this, you'll have early access to new episodes, the ability to ask future guests questions, check out exclusive merchandise, and other special benefits. We've also got an official merch store and an Amazon store filled with Star Trek goodies. So if you want to rock a Trek Untold t-shirt to the next con you're going to, or order something Star Trek related for yourself or someone else, please use the links in the show notes to help us help you. Shout out to our show sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, makers of fine 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and accessories for collectors of all kinds. But you'll hear more about them later on. Now without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file.
There's not many people who spent time on the bridge all by themselves, especially ones who aren't main cast members. But today's guest joins a very exclusive club of people to do that and was rewarded with a phaser blast to the chest. Deborah Levin, welcome to Trek Untold. Hi, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great intro. You made me feel good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it feels good to be phasered in the chest, doesn't it? It feels good to be in that small company. Yeah, to be on the bridge by yourself. Yes, it's true. There are very, very few people even to this day in modern Trek to get to do that. I mean, even we're doing this interview right now in the summertime and like Strange New Worlds is going on right now. And episode four is coming up. And that literally has a scene with like Spock and uh, Ortega goes on the bridge together alone. That's it. But you're still like one of the few who's done practically solo, which is pretty, pretty huge thing for Star Trek. I'm excited. And I have to say, actually, yeah, solo, completely solo. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Deborah, let's just kind of jump back into the past for a minute before we get into our Trek talk and everything else here today. And I want to get some background info on you. So okay. uh, first things first, I want to ask the question I ask all my guests, Deborah, and that's what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Were you a fan of the series growing up? Well, hmm. So two different answers. My earliest memory is being very little and seeing it on TV. And honestly, I was not a big fan of the series growing up. I didn't dislike it. I did like it. Um, But especially with your audience, when I think of the words like big fans, (laughs) the big fans of Star Trek are big, big, big fans. Um, But yeah, I guess when I was little, I used to see it on TV. And then I know I mentioned this to you before, years later, when uh, my mom remarried, my stepdad's best friend was Harlan Ellison. So that kind of brought in a whole new twist to Star Trek into my life. Um, Although I did get to know him more after I had worked on Voyager. Well, we're definitely going to get to that because I always love hearing good Harlan Ellison stories. I I cannot ever ask about those things. I I can't ever not ask about those things. So we're definitely going to get there soon. Okay. Um, And, you know, really, there's no problem being a big Trekkie, little Trekkie, minor Trekkie. It's all the same. As long as you love Trek, we're happy here. Excellent. Oh, I do. (laughs) And I love that I'm part of that family. I mean, that is not wasted on me, knowing the passion of the whole thing and the fans. Yes, that is humongous. Passion is a very way of saying obsession. So thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> thank you for that compliment to Trekkies everywhere. Uh, so Deborah, can you tell us where you grew up, who your parents were, and what they did, and what little Deborah wanted to be when she grew up? Little Deb wanted to be an actress when she grew up. I did my first uh, professional show play when I was seven, and it just continued. I did a lot of theater. I grew up in Cleveland. I did local TV in Cleveland. My parents divorced when I was seven and my mom remarried when I was eight. (laughs) And uh, my mom and stepdad have recently passed away. My dad is still alive. My dad is a retired dentist in Cleveland. My stepdad uh, was known to a lot of uh, Cleveland audiences. He did a lot of theater. Um, he was also a director. His name was Stu Levin. He also became the ABC affiliate in Cleveland's main movie guy in the late seventies and early eighties. He did all the press junkets. I got to go with him on a whole bunch of, uh, press junkets when new films came out. He had a show on, uh, public broadcasting locally called silent movies, excuse me, talking movies in which he showed only silence. He really helped me develop a love of um, 
classic movies, which actually comes into mind when I think about Star Trek, because I, I kind of equate my, well, Cleveland baseball also, but my love of classic film with Star Trek's passion. And I appreciate you even pointing out the difference between being obsessed and being passionate, like, or, or not, because that is like, that's how I feel about classic films. Um, I probably answered way too much than what you asked. Did I answer your question? Oh, that's, that's plenty. That's perfect. Actually. Oh, uh, good. You, you covered everything there. So that's good. Um, good. yeah. And, and it's cool to talk about the, your passion for classic movies. I have a similar passion. Folks who are watching the video version can see that really awesome fighting 69th poster behind you there. Excellent. Uh, right. Which is a wonderful poster. Um, uh, were there any movies you. in particular that you feel like made a real deep impression on you then? And like, maybe, uh, I don't want to say gave you some tools, but any like actors or films that you remembered held on to and were like, I want to use bits of that in how I perform. Yeah. My favorite actor is Jimmy Cagney. Jimmy Cagney. Okay. Yeah. And from the first time I saw him, even before I was kind of old enough to formulate what I like so much about him, I was still able to realize that no matter what he did and no matter how big or small or strong or weak or risks or dancing or singing or tough, he was believable. He was just honest. And, you know, a lot of people say in those days, the personalities were bigger. Absolutely. Before kind of the method period of more real, more internal, it was a bit more presented for you. But I saw Betty Davis say to Dick Cavett, well, sure. We we did give it a touch of uh, we heightened it. We presented it. But it takes actors like Jimmy Cagney and Betty Davis to be able to do that and still be totally believable. That doesn't mean that they're just pushing it and it's not they're not speaking their truth. Cagney said, always believe everything you say. I had an acting teacher once who said. Always be honest. And if you can't, you better be the best damn actor or actress there is. So it's an honesty about Cagney. It's so real. I think it's unattractive to see an actor or actress playing a quality. Like if Cagney was a lesser actor, he would be playing at being tough. And then when you watch it, they're just not tough. There's something about when someone just makes you believe they really are, that you're seeing that truth, even if it is heightened, like it was a lot in the 30s and 40s. So. He is absolutely my favorite actor. I have thought recently, if he weren't, who might it be? And I come up with Frederick March. I think he might be. I just love someone who's versatile, talented, um, believable. Um, and yeah, movies are just such an escape and so delicious and put you there. and. Um, yeah, so Cagney's my favorite, but movies in general, big, big, big fan. And we can get to this later, but one of the highlights for me of doing the Star Trek convention was making new friends, meeting people like Carl Held, who was on the original series, who I'm still friends with to this day. And he's and on this podcast, too. I was going to ask you, because I was going to say if he wasn't, I should ask him. Also, not to be a name dropper, but... I became friends with Gary Lockwood when I did the Star Trek convention. That's a name worth dropping, Deborah. Thank you. I don't like to be a name dropper, but I'm telling you that, I mean, and we are in touch also to this day. And 2001 is one of my favorite movies. So, uh, yeah, big, big, big movie fan. Huge. 
Well, great choices too. Cagney's amazing. Although I gotta say, it's it's always confusing. Like, cause I know him from the stereotypical Cagney of like you know Blood in the Sun and like the uh-huh. gangster films that kind of thing. And then you yeah. see him Yankee Doodle Dandy, and you're like, what's he doing? <laughs> it's the most bizarre thing. He would say to you, "What's he doing in the tough guy roles?" Because he was a a singer, a dancer, especially Broadway, off Broadway, before anything. And it just so happened that. So Al Jolson saw him and Joan Blondell in a show in New York. He loved it. He told the Warner Brothers, who, of course, loved him at that time, because it was only a few years after The Jazz Singer, you need to make the show into a movie and you need to bring out these two leads. I know you don't know who they are, but their names are James Cagney and Joan Blondell. And it was a tough guy role and it just kind of stuck. And he was good at it. Um, But he always hoped and wanted to sing and dance more than he got to and look yankee doodle dandy that's the only movie for which he won an oscar so interesting it is yeah frederick march also a very good choice i'm surprised by that one like i know him mostly just from uh the original dr jekyll and mr high the first one ever in hollywood uh, and that's a really great movie i, I can't say that i've this seen much talking. beyond that it was yeah i mean there's barrymore there's a silent jekyll and hyde there is okay i've never seen that one. Oh yeah 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 but no i love that version of course, I love Spencer Tracy, but, um, you know, the code <laughs> was really unfortunate in a lot of ways. And there are a lot of things in the Frederick March Jekyll and Hyde that they couldn't do because it later because it was pre-code that they're not even they're not gratuitous. They're not salacious. They're just sensible. Even him talking about that side of man, like, would you deny it? Like, oh, you can't have that in the Spencer Tracy version. Um, so yeah, it's great. Love Frederick March. See, you know, it's interesting too, because yeah, as you mentioned, thirties and forties movies, you know, sometimes there is some elements of, of unnaturalness in them because they are kind of like fast talking, high pants adventures. Um, but you know, and like for for me, it took me a while to like get an appreciation for it. Like, I think one of my favorites from that era is Humphrey Bogart. And I used to like make fun of Humphrey Bogart. So I'm like, yeah, whatever this guy is just, you know, he's just talking like this all the time. And then I I actually watched more of his films and like now treasure of the Sierra Madre is like one of my top 10 of all time. It's really, really, really good. I know. Um, my favorite Cagney movie is a it's a smaller movie. It's called City for Conquest. And I remember I was um, dating a guy who I'm still very good friends with. And I said, come over for we'll have dinner and I'll show you my favorite movie, my favorite Cagney movie, City for Conquest. And about five minutes into it, he turned to me and he said, can you stop it for one sec? And I said, sure. And he said, I don't understand. I don't understand anything. I don't understand what they're saying. I, they're talking so fast. I don't know. Like they're using words I don't know. And I said, oh, that's right. I guess I'm just completely used to this, to your point. It is a different style. But I'll tell you, sometimes as an actress, you know, we get screeners, which is really nice before award season. Sometimes I will watch a bunch and then take a break and put in a great old movie. And it always strikes me in the older movie the writing that every single moment you see moves the plot along it even if there's not dialogue right it always is moving along and that's why there were so many great movies that were like 89 minutes you know or 92 minutes whereas today i don't mind a very long movie if it's great but a lot are not and they're kind of self indulgent so i do think even that Fast talking, I think, has something to do with the pace and the whole, this is the story. And then, boop, that's it. It's done. 
But I want to dig a little bit deeper right now. Otherwise, we're going to be just making this into an audition tape for TCM. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you could be taking over those hosting gigs any day now. Ben Mankiewicz is uh, hopefully going to be part of TCM. Who, who knows by the time this airs what's happening with that channel. But uh, I understand yeah, things are, are going well. Okay, good. So I'm hoping by the time that this does air, everything will be all smoothed out and TCM will be back to its glory. But I believe uh, that is the case. Yeah. Well, uh, it will be. I, I believe it will be back um, in a glorious way. I do. Well, that's good. I will take that optimism and uh, and put mine into it as well. But you know, I want to go back into like how you discovered acting and why you went to acting because you, know, you said at a pretty young age, right? You were like seven when you first started doing it. I mean, I don't know if you've ever really thought much about like why you went into that direction of wanting to perform and act on stage. But it is interesting to know that like, at a young age, that's the direction you wanted to go into. Yeah, um, there's a cute little anecdote about that. When my mom was um, separated, going through her divorce, her parents, my grandparents, took her to see West Side Story at a theater that used to be in Cleveland called the Music Carnival, which is a huge tent theater. Um, they had all kinds of stars come in there, Sammy Davis Jr. and Engelbert Humperdinck and Gladys Knight. And uh, it, it's, it was a wonderful place. And they noticed in the back of the program that they were offering um, youth theater classes for kids. And evidently, my grandfather said to my mom, why don't you sign up Deb? I I guess he said... She's so precocious, which is funny. It's not a word that I think of myself being, but I guess my grandfather did when I was little. She'd probably really enjoy it. Now, to that point, I know I loved like playing make-believe. And even in first grade, I was writing scripts and casting them with my neighborhood friends and doing little plays. So my mom said, okay. So she took me. And on the very first day of the classes, um, someone whose position was very high up at the music carnival was also running the youth theater. And he was down on the stage. And I said to her, can I go down there? And she said, I guess so. And she told the story that she looked down on the stage and she saw this man and she, she thought, who is that? She was, you know, going through a divorce with two little kids thinking, well, I, you know, in those days, not a lot of people were divorced. It's not like today with little kids. She figured that's it. She was very interested in this guy. He ended up being my stepfather. So they used to say that I introduced them. So that's something kind of fun about my early acting career. But to answer your question more specifically, I think, I don't know, it, maybe it was the idea of make-believe, pretend, um, you know, and maybe I did enjoy having the attention um I can't say exactly what it was, but then, and I was also, you know, even when I was little, um, like Disney movie, like I loved whatever the entertainment industry is to a little, little kid, you know, I really enjoyed it. I loved that escape that, um, everything that, that those things would bring that feeling of loveliness, of peace, of security, maybe that might've been too. There was, there were, you know, uneasy times at home and in Cinderella, all the little animals were taken care of and loved and adorable. And uh, so I don't know. I, I'm not sure. But I just knew that I always I always wanted to be an actress as long as I can remember. I and mean, Deborah, you can let me know if I'm out of line with this kind of follow up to it here. Okay. But, you, you know, you said you're maybe not entirely sure. I know when you're at a young age, too, for the most part, it's hard to have like concrete memories. It's mostly a lot of feelings and emotions tied to your memories. But, you know, you, you use the word escape and you talked about how you're having like, a tough home life. And you told me a few minutes earlier how like around that age is also 
when your parents initially got their divorce. So I'm wondering for you if like if acting was, you know, not just for the attention, but also just literally for that escape of what's going on with the home life. I mean, do you think that's kind of what drove you deeper into it? And then as time went on, maybe you got more passionate about it. I think that's totally out of line. No, I'm totally kidding you. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I have to go. No, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. In fact, that's kind of what I meant. Um, I don't know if it's that black and white, but there have to be elements of that in it. Absolutely. I, I do think that I have a really difficult time to this day watching animated Disney features, particularly the originals, but even what I call the originals, you know, from the classics. But yeah, there's an innocence about it that that makes me cry, that feels like a lost time to me in my life, but a lovely time too. So yes, I think you put it very well, all of those things as well. And then, yeah, there's a part of me too that's, um, you know, my parents always taught me, uh, do things correctly or don't do things at all. Don't do half jobs. Do it from the beginning, do it to the end. So I think that part of me too, I call it my anal Capricorn freak side, really wanted, you know, I, I was curious to dig into it and to do shows and to learn and to learn that, wow, you learn a lot too from sweeping a stage, from doing crew work, from being up in the booth, from sewing costumes, from listening to director's notes, to doing all these things that are all part of the ensemble of putting together theater or television or, you know, or or, or whatnot. So I would say yes to everything you just asked. Absolutely. So you're kind of like looking for some order as well. It sounds like a little bit just like something to kind of center yeah. life. Right. And I'm not, I mentioned what a huge fan I am of Cleveland uh, baseball, but I am not athletic myself. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't do sports. I wasn't on teams. I was in a show. Yeah. I was tired at school because I was doing Anne Frank at somewhere that wasn't close. And I was up late at night at like, that was my thing. And maybe, you know, kids like to do certain sports that they feel like, well, you know, I, I'm decent at this and I'm interested in doing it and learning and getting better at this. That's how I felt about acting. Now, you went to USC ultimately, right? To continue to learn acting? I did. Yes. I grew up in Cleveland and then I actually moved out to LA just a couple of days before my senior year of high school. My mom That's and I moved out, um, which is not as bad as it sounds because I knew that I wanted to be an actress and I knew that eventually I probably wanted to be out here. I don't sing or dance professionally. So New York at that time didn't really seem like the right place. So I went to high school for a year and then that's really when I started, I got an agent, started doing TV and, you know, national TV, not like local things that I had done in Cleveland. And then, um, yeah. And then I went to USC. So, you know, this is a pretty big culture clash, I feel like, for someone to go from Ohio to L.A. And I know, granted, Cleveland is a city, but it's still not L.A. Yeah. And especially at that time, I wore my first day of high school in the Valley, what I thought would be very hip in Cleveland, which was a pale yellow Izod polo shirt with the collar up. And a sleeveless argyle vest and khaki pants. And I thought I was going to get laughed out of, you know, the valley in the 80s. They called me Miss Natural because my hair was its original color. And I was like, we're still kids. What do you mean my hair is my original color? We're just, we're in high school. Um, It was 
shocking. I thought that school was difficult. It, in Cleveland, it was a challenge for me. Here, it was two periods and then brunch, two periods and then lunch, and then one period and I went home. And I guess I had pretty much satisfied everything I needed. Do you know what I mean? Through the end of my junior year. So I took like cartooning. <laughs> but I did take cinema, of course, first period, <laughs> like two <laughs> classes before brunch. One of them is cinema. The only class and that matters. Exactly. And it was wonderful. And it was wonderful. Yes, but it was a culture shock. In Cleveland, teach male teachers were still wearing ties, jackets. Uh, we weren't allowed to wear sandals or shorts here. I'm, I live in LA. That's what they were wearing. I mean, everything. Yeah, it was absolutely. I remember a friend saying to me, like, are you going to go to school on Yom Kippur? And I was like, no, of course not. And he said, oh, me either. So do you want to go to the beach? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, What's going on here? Yeah, it was just a, a whole kind of vibe I felt like of what was cool was to do the least, like put put forth the least amount of effort possible to get whatever you're doing done. Whereas Cleveland was probably like the opposite, you know, like a little bit more uptight and on time. But I remember thinking like, if someone tells me they're going to, like if I made plans with someone in Cleveland, unless someone got sick or something happened, we would do it. And I remember thinking, it's not like that here. Like you make plans and then it might happen or it might not. Yeah, it was huge culture shock. I mean, that's kind of the thing that you do on the highest holy day of the year is you go get a tan. That's, that's exactly what you do. Like, I understand staying home. And I'm not even saying it's bad to go to the beach. I, I, I'm not that religious. But at that, you know, at that time, it just shocked me. But I, I don't know. Everything was just, um, yeah, that might not be a good example. But 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 for whatever <laughs> it's worth, it's, it sticks in my mind. It was big culture shock. It was a lot of fun. It was very different. Um, I did Streetcar Named Desire, the, the play in school out here. I did one uh, play also at my high school in Cleveland, Splendor in the Grass, but both of the school drama departments were, um, I don't want to sound snobby. I, I just wanted more. So then I, you know, I left and, and did other things as well. But those were great experiences also at school. Fun. I know you had done some like local TV stuff in Cleveland, as you already mentioned. Now you're here in LA. Now you're like a working pro. But, you know, I, I don't want to think that you're going to have like a big head because you did some local stuff when you came to L.A. first. But, uh, you know, as an adult, what was your very first professional gig and what did you learn from it? And how did you feel walking onto that set for the first time? Hmm. Well, you know, it is a little confusing because I did do television work in Cleveland that was local and that did feel very professional for sure. But the movie that got me my SAG card when I was out here was called Children of Times Square. Mm -hmm. And it was a it was a TV movie, and I was very excited because I got my SAG card. And, you know, it was during this horrible time that so many kids, for real, were running away to New York. And they made a movie about it. And I auditioned for a very, very young uh, prostitute. And... I felt really good about the audition. It was sort of a departure for me. And I remember thinking, like, I want to be in touch with the vulnerability of this character, like to having to do something like this. Um, and I booked it. 
and I was really excited. And I remember I went to visit my grandfather who was dying. And I told him that I got a real TV movie and I was going to be union and he couldn't talk. And I said, I'm going to be a hooker. And I remember he went like, wow. (laughs) And I think the day before I was set to shoot, I got a call from my agent and they said, they're changing the role. (laughs) And I got the sides and I went and I worked with Joanna Cassidy and I was the very um, kind, apologetic, responsible woman who worked at the bus stop, whose her runaway son had evidently gone there to get a ticket to go to New York. And she was showing me a picture of him, hoping it wasn't him. But I remembered that it was him. And I had to share and like. I mean, it's opposite from Hooker, right? As night and day. So, but it was a kind of really interesting first experience of like, oh, that's what this is like. I mean, talk about you make plans and then you don't know if they're going to happen. You need to be open and ready for anything. It's interesting to me. How did they know I was going to do that well? What what happened? Did that other thing get written out? Um it was a lot of fun, honestly, to go to hair and makeup. It wasn't a big role, so I didn't have lots to uh, memorize. But, you know, the it's funny. I don't have as many memories of, say, the first one as I do other jobs that were so much fun or special to me. But obviously, it was great to book that first job. But I do think it's interesting that it ended up being what I booked, but not what I auditioned for and not what I shot. I mean, that's Hollywood for you, kid. Welcome to Hollywood. That's Hollywood. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, yeah, that's always interesting because, uh, again, it's kind of like that that first show. A lot of times I talk to folks and I ask that question. It's a similar answer. They might not have all the memories, but they still have the feelings from it. Yes. And, uh, I-, I am hoping now that this other show I'm going to ask you about, you got some memories from because uh, it's a little bit of an obscure one. Um, yeah. But it is one that I have a little bit of an obsession with, not not Star Trek related. Um, you did an obscure crime drama called O'Hara. And that show that starred Pat Morita as Lieutenant O'Hara. It also had Madge Sinclair and Kevin Conroy, a.k.a. the greatest Batman ever. Uh, had a lot of great <laughs> guest stars. Tell me about your episode and any memories of working with Pat. I, You know, I'm really... Okay, I have two strong feelings right now. One's good, one's bad. The good one is, I'm so happy that you asked me about this. And it takes seriously like a Star Trek fan to say, Okay, I looked at all your stuff. I know, Will and Grace, blah, blah. But what about this? And I'm happy because of everything I've done, I think I've had the hardest time finding it. Like, I can't find me on it. I can't find a clip of that. I can't find information. I was really challenged just to find enough information to get that um, credit on IMDb. Like, usually it's not hard in this. I will admit, too, that O'Hara, you can find a few episodes on YouTube, but not the ones that you did or not the one that you did, rather. Thank you for telling me that. So that's the good part. The bad part is I don't, sorry, I don't have a lot of memories of it. I Nothing bad. I was very excited to get it, of course. I thought that it was so interesting. You know, good or bad, we all are introduced to actors and actresses in something. And then maybe we think of them from that thing. You know, so like with him, Happy days, right? Happy days at that point, yeah. Yeah. And so one really vivid memory is like, oh, how interesting. He's doing this kind of crime drama, drama episodic. It's not a sitcom. Um, And 
this is going to sound weird, but a lot of like exterior stuff and just so obviously different than happy days. Um, all I remember was the shoot was, was far. We went somewhere far away. It was a long drive to get there and I was excited to do it. And I'm just being totally honest with you. I don't remember much about it. I do remember, I don't have any experience on any show that I've done that I felt like, you know what? The people weren't that nice. I don't. And um, it's challenging to come into something working as a guest star when that like ensemble that I was talking about, people are a family working on something together. And you're definitely sort of the odd person out. Um, and some people on a show will go further than others to make you feel welcome and accepted knowing that. Yeah, but it is everybody that makes this what it is. Um, and again, luckily, I yeah, I don't have any bad stories of things that I've worked on that it was ever particularly difficult, including including that. Right, so, that's still. That's what I can tell you. Sorry. <laughs> that's all good. And just to make a quick correction, too, I was actually Googling it while you were talking. Um, so O'Hara came out a few years after Karate Kid. So at that point, he was then kind of like getting his second going, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, but what I was saying was like, I think of like, oh, happy days. Yeah. You know what I mean? From when I was younger. But I say that meaning like this is really cool that he's doing something like this. Oh, and I get to do it. Okay, great. Yeah. A really yes, good show. Good. I'm it, glad you think it was good. That's great. I enjoyed it. I, I wish, really wish I could find more. And like I said, I found a few uh, online floating around there because, you know, there are ways to find things. It's, it's not always easy, but you, you look hard enough, you dig deep enough, you can eventually find some stuff. But the one that you were in, I couldn't find it because if I had, it, I would have been poking your memory. I would have been like, you did this and this and this. But yeah, yeah, I, and I would have loved it. <laughs> but I can do that here about this one because you also appeared in Married with Children, an episode from season three, My Mom, the Mom. <laughs> where you learned valuable life lessons from Katie Seagal, the worst mom probably in television history. Um, man, that, that's a fun episode. Like, I got to rewatch that one again, and it's just great because Married with Children is so hilarious. It A lot of stuff probably doesn't age well, but it sure does hold up to my test of time. And uh, I'd love Excellent. to hear about your time working on that show. Fantastic. That, that episode happened to be um, their highest rated episode, uh, most watched. And then the same with the rerun, the highest rated rerun, which was fun. All because of you, Deborah. You're all because of Susan. Sweet. Sorry, what? All because all because of Susan. That was your character's name. Oh, Susan. That's right. I was like, what did you say? Um, I remember. It's hard hard for me to say this, but I remember Christina Applegate saying to me that Katie had said to her during a rehearsal of me, "Watch her. She's really good." That just made me feel so good, and I think it's uh, uh you know, my theatrical background. I learned. I think if you learn and study acting for theater, it's easier to make the change to TV than vice versa. Uh, obviously, a ton of fun to work on that show. It was a big hit by the time I did it. I kind of feel bad that I relayed that story, but I but it did make me feel really good. It's a really nice thing that happened on the set, you know, Um uh, everybody was nice. And it's, again, a, uh, I'm going to say a good example of the business of show and Hollywood. Like when the camera is not rolling, that's not going on. You know what I mean? There's, there's so much thought and work that goes into writing and directing and camera angles and, um, you know, 
like you say about Katie, the worst mom ever. Like she's like that. Yeah, because she's a really good actress. Like she's it's just fun. I, I think I will never lose that joy of meeting people who I think are great actors and actresses, kind of letting myself get into that disconnect of believing that, like you say, like, no, Cagney's a tough guy. What's this? Like, I get it. I I love that stuff. But it is fun and interesting to see the work that goes into it to create, let's say, something like that. Again, everybody was super nice. It was super fun. And fun tidbit about that since you just watched it. Um, sometimes on a show, they might ask you to bring in some things into wardrobe, and then they'll have some things and maybe they'll decide what they want. They really loved that sweater that I brought in that my mom happened to knit for me. So. Um, Actually, I was taking care of her when she, when she was sick and, and I was just a few years ago, she was in bed and I was next to her and I said, oh, mom, look, there's a rerun of Married with Children. Let's put it on so you can see that lovely sweater that you made for me that's on TV. And that was also a nice memory of that show. And the paychecks are nice. The royalties are also pretty nice. But having that memory with your mom, your mom being a part of your TV history, that's, that's pretty amazing. Thanks. Yeah. And funny, you should say Married with Children and Star Trek are shows where, you know, the um, the residuals, they keep a coming. Don't stop making it rain, Paramount. <laughs> Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the US, with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter Untold10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using Untold10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Hey, I'm Licia Nav, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now, Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row, and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, T-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein and a way to clean themselves, especially during Corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly 
who have a really hard time getting to services. And we do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lord X or Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. All right, well, Deborah, let's beam into your time on Star Trek right now, and that takes place on the bridge of the USS Voyager with you as Ensign Lang. And you appeared three times in Voyager, starting with the third season episode of Blood Fever, followed by Displaced, and then Year of Hell. So, Deborah, had you auditioned previously for any iterations of Star Trek? No. timer okay. I was a first-timer, and a, a good friend of mine gave me a great tip. He said, just remember that that stuff that you're saying that sounds very technical up on the bridge, that lingo, that, like, crazy stuff, as an ensign, you say that every day. That's just a very natural conversation. So you need to make it sound like that. I thought, oh, that's a great note. Again, honesty, truth, right? Stuff that, you know, the ensign would speak like I'm speaking to you right now. This is the language that I use. These are the colloquialisms, et cetera. That was a great um, a, a great piece of direction. And I guess it worked because, I, yeah, I auditioned once and I got it. And then that first episode... That was a two-parter, right? Uh, the first one you did was Blood Fever, actually. Oh, the first one. I'm so sorry. Thank goodness I have you. So Blood Fever. Yeah. So it was kind of small, but I knew I was an ensign who lived, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll get to go back. And then I got to go back for Year of Hell. And this is something, you know, when I did the Star Trek convention in Vegas, I was, as I was before saying yes to talking to you, a little bit concerned that because I know the Star Trek fans are so passionate, obsessive, whatever you want to call them, that maybe I won't have enough tidbits or things to talk about about Star Trek. And that one of the things I talked about in Vegas that was really fun that I wanted to talk about here too, being such an old movie fan, because to me, this is totally 1940s. I've never had anything like this. I got a call. And to be honest, I I think it was before Displaced, but it could have been before Blood Fever. I don't remember. And my agent said, hey, the producers on Star Trek are really, really into hair, big time, even if you're a human. So they want you to go over to Paramount and do like a day of hair tests, which you get paid for. And I said, "Okay." And I thought, wow, this is totally 1940s. I went to the hair and makeup trailer, and that's exactly what it was. They did one after another after another, completely different do, you know, up, down, all kind, whatever. And then they would photograph it from every angle, take pictures, wash it out, comb it out, do another one until they ended up with what they were going to do. And, you know, there's expense in that, right? Because they have the tra- they're paying those people, they're paying me. And I thought it was fun and interesting. And now whenever I look at Voyager... Or the other shows too. I do think about like, oh, I bet a lot of thought went into that particular hairstyle. It's kind of a girly, fun thing, a good memory about part of many of my good memories about the show, but that that was one. 
I don't think we'd call that too girly either because a lot of the women, especially like their hair is pretty notable across all iterations of Star Trek. It is an important yeah. thing of really setting the tone of the show also. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, and, and that was fun. And I loved it. And, you know, getting in the uniform, totally fun. I just remember too going, it was a different day before I worked just to try on. They have to, you know, see what size and all that. Yeah, it was super fun. I mean, I'm glad you brought up the uniform because I wanted to ask you, remember, like, how did that thing feel to wear? Um, it was very fitted, but it was comfortable. I've had a lot of, <laughs> I'm going to say specifically straight males say to me, hey, did you get to keep the uniform? <laughs> I guess the uniform is really a big deal, which is interesting, right? Because it's like, it you're really covered in it. Um, but I'm learning that from the Star Trek fans or people who obsess that I guess there's a lot of interest in the uniforms. I, it felt great. It was wonderful. I like long sleeves, you know, I'm a little it, really fun. I remember during Displaced being up there on the bridge by myself after Chakotay is off and thinking, I am so happy that I'm working. I love working on a you know, major Hollywood studio lot that is incredible that I'm back, that I'm not killed again. I'm stunned, but I'm not killed that I might come like this is amazing that I'm part of this incredible history. But I can remember clearly also like looking at the buttons and things thinking to myself. And I can appreciate that if I were a crazy major Star Trek fan, like so many of you wonderful people, this would be absolutely like. Maybe it's even good that I'm not because I can focus, you know, better. But the whole thing was great. Just uh, Yeah, to be a part of that. Um, now, interestingly, you haven't asked me about this yet, but I'll skip to it. I remember being surprised when I was asked back after Displaced, which was so much fun to have so much to do to just Robert and me. He was excellent. He was he was so he was fun. He was chill. He was funny. He was easygoing. And then by myself and then the bad guys and getting shot and being shot. I was surprised. And like you say, that's Hollywood, baby. My next episode, hardly anything at all, right? Like the tiniest role. That's how it goes. But thrilled to be working. But I do remember thinking like, oh, really? That's all I do? <laughs> but very grateful to have the job. Yeah, I mean, Displaced is a pretty good episode also. It's a weird episode, but it's a good episode. And, uh, you know, since we're talking about it right now, we'll jump ahead or whatever. But, uh, you know, when you first saw the script for that, this isn't like, you know, when you did Blood Fever and I think you had like one or two lines. Yeah. This time around, you're a pivotal part of this episode. So, like, how shocked were you to see that this little ensign suddenly is playing a pretty major role? I, you know, not only was I shocked, I was shocked. I was very excited. Um, I was shocked. I was happy. I knew it was a big deal that I was going to be the only one on the bridge. Like, I knew that. I asked friends because, again, I wasn't as much of a Trekkie as so many other people. And it was really friends who were saying, like, wait, what? Seriously? And I was like, yeah, like, look, at here. there's no one else. I'm telling you. Um, and maybe, you know, when you're working on something, I have found this with almost every show I've ever been on. There's really a feeling when you're working on it because people want it to be so great. It, it feels
feels like it is. You know, it's exciting. You got that take exactly how you wanted to do it or you didn't. And now you did. And wow, look at the set, all these things. And I honestly, I, me aside, like I, I really like that episode. And it surprises me that it doesn't, it really does not show up. You can speak to this far better than I. In the list of, oh, these are my favorite Voyager episodes. It it, it doesn't show up a lot there. And I think that I like it so much because, you know, speaking of Gary Lockwood and Star Trek, I'm such a science fiction fan. I love the idea of, for the same reason I I like history, how did people live somewhere else completely, Mm. some other time completely? And to see them all in that other place, I thought was interesting. And it had a, they all did, and Star Trek does have this great human element. But I felt like that episode really did. You know what I mean? And so it does surprise me. I know people have different tastes, or maybe it's not that great, but I do, I, I do like that episode a lot. And I, yeah, and I'm excited. And I feel like there was such a difference between what's going on on the ship and where the place to where they are all displaced. Like that feeling was kind of fun. Yes, sorry, I went on and on. I was elated. I was very excited to read that. It, it is pretty cool. And, you know, the interesting thing is like, yeah, it is a good episode. It's written by Lisa Klink, who, uh, by the way, if anyone's interested, we actually did a two-part interview with her. So go ahead and dig up our archives to see our wonderful mm-hmm. chat with Lisa. Um, but, you know, you look at this place, and it's a good, fun sci-fi episode. It's like classic Trek. But then you compare it to like another episode you did, which is Year of Hell, and that's like a masterpiece. And it's like, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah, you got good versus great. And it's like, it's hard because they're still really both good, but you're yeah. just like infinitely so much better. And that's just me going on my Star Trek rant here. But, uh, you know, like any chance I get to like rewatch that episode or episodes, I should say, uh, that's always a treat since we are kind of jumping around here. You know, for Year of Hell, I was trying to find where the heck you were. And that's, that's what I do. I try and find screenshots to put into this video version here. Um, so can you for, for folks who are more eagle eyed out there and who are going to be hunting down for you, where can we find you in Year of Hell? Oh my gosh, now you put me on the spot. Now you're really on the spot. I know it's there because before I did the, I mean, it wasn't cut out. Before I did the Star Trek convention in Vegas, I went back and found everything that I did because I really needed a refresher. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you'll edit this out or not. I don't know where it is, but it's there. It's short. And you know what's interesting too, because sometimes the camera time is short, but it doesn't mean... Like we could still be on the set and maybe you see us and maybe even you don't. Um, But we are, you know, pretending to work and do stuff. And so it feels more like we're a part of that scene. Like you would be on stage and theater than how it's cut than, you know, what you may end up being. So I'm sorry, I can't tell you exactly where it is, but it's there somewhere. (laughs) I'm going to see if I could refresh your memory a little bit here. Uh, Was the Voyager clean and pretty or at this point was it a little bit destroyed at at that moment that you see me yeah do you mean i think it was still clean and pretty so that probably means you're in the beginning of the show then i hear you don't quote me i'm so see this is where i know that like the diehard fans are gonna be like how could you possibly not know because i i get it i would be the same way with a you know, Cagney movie. I get it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, listen, we'll have a recovery question here for you. This one, I don't even expect an answer for. So, you know, we know that your character is Ensign Lang, but does Ensign Lang have a first name? And if she didn't officially, did you make one up? That's a great question. I have never been able to find a first name. Um, 
I did not make one up. I read a kind of like novella thing that someone wrote about. This is a fan fiction? It is and a fan fiction. That, I will share with you. I was um I I I was a lesbian in his story. <laughs> um and yet he did not even give me a name. <laughs> like we had those details. No, I but I am I lying? I only read this once a long time ago. I'm impressed you read the thing at all, it sounds like. I mean, I, I... <laughs> you know, to be honest, I it, it was actually very um tame. And yeah, so I read it and but it comes to mind because I'm wondering if he gave me a name and I don't I don't think so. Um so no, I I've I, I'm not aware. If any fans who are watching this know something that I don't, I very much hope they will reach out to me on social media, on Instagram or on Twitter, but really more either one at Deborah eleven seven and tell me what my name is. That would I would love to know that. That would be great. Do you think there someone there is somehow a name? It wasn't yeah. in the script, so yeah, if it wasn't in the script, right? it wouldn't have been out there then, unless it's like in a trading card or a book somewhere. I mean, but the fact is, I mean, if it's not in if it's not in your your fanfic, then it's probably not out there. Period. Right. Um, yeah. Although to be and fair, I mean, the fact book, that, I don't know that I haven't seen. I don't know. Yeah, but to be I'm fair, the fact is, you made it into a fan fiction, so I think that really means you made it. <laughs> like you did it, kid. You're in a fanfic. Congrats. Thank you. I know it's crazy. I remember years ago seeing this big book at Costco about the world of Star Trek. And I thought like, oh, let me see if I'm in it. And I, I totally was, you know, and I thought this is amazing. This is really, yeah, really super. So I got to ask a real important question here. And I know you're, you know, you wouldn't necessarily call yourself like a big hardcore Trekkie, but you know, you are on the bridge of Voyager for all your episodes. Did you at any point off camera, did Deborah sit in the captain's chair and give it a try? This is going to be the worst answer you can possibly imagine. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you like, you're fired. This interview is over. Um, I definitely walked around and took it in. And I remember looking at all the, the you know, prop fake buttons and commands and things because I thought, you know, you use these every day. You're aware of them. You know how they work. You know where they are. You can't walk up to it while the camera's rolling and see it like you've never seen it before. So I I did that. You know, I think honesty is my worst virtue, right? I <laughs> I, I should like yes or no. I, I I may have, and if I did, I'm sure it was absolutely delicious and wonderful. But I don't remember. Listen, Sorry. we'll just say that at the moment you were sucked into some, into some like timey wimey vortex, and you can't remember anymore because that timeline was changed. I'll just I'll just say all the techno babble. That's that's a word I'm going to give with you right now. It's techno babble. It's all the weird sci fi words. So yeah, just something timey wimey happened. It's no big deal. Perfect. But yes, yeah. I love it. Let's go with that. I do have something. I'm, I'm sure you must know the answer to this one here, and that's working with Robert Beltran. Because like we said, you're sharing the bridge with him in Displaced. Uh, what kind of a scene partner is Robert like? Fun, handsome laid back, easygoing, making jokes, professional. Um, he just made it really comfortable. And, you know, it was such a difference from, because we shot in order. So I worked with him until he goes off the bridge until the bad guys come and all that. Um, after blood fever, where, to your point, I mean, there's a lot going on. And did you even see me? And, you know, it's 
to be able to be with just one other person, it kind of heightens the whole thing in a way, you know, just to do a two person scene. And there's like that little joke. He asks me like how I like my first day. And I say something like, oh, it's everything I dreamed of. And and he laughs like, how great is that? It was that's how it was. It was just warm. And um, yeah, he just made me feel I completely believed that he needed that ensign there to help him, that we were working together. And that's kind of what I'm talking about, about, you know, the guest star comes in and they're sort of the odd person out. Um, it was lovely. And here's something else that was is different and challenging for me. At that time, I had done um, mostly theater or sitcoms and sitcoms, you have the joy of, well, maybe I hadn't done mostly sitcoms, but I, but I will still say working in front of a studio audience is really fun. And you have the best of all worlds. You have people reacting to you. They're there. They want to have fun. They want to laugh. Stuff that isn't that funny somehow just is funny because they're there watching you and great big stars doing it. If you make a mistake, you can do it again. But something like Star Trek, you're in a soundstage and there are really pretty few people there because people are watching it on monitors to see what it's going to look like on TV. It's a very different experience than having an audience in a theater or than doing a sitcom. And you do so many takes again and again and again and again and again. And you want to keep it fresh, like the acting term is, as if it were for the first time. And it's one thing to do a play every night and for those three hours, make it as if it were for the first time. But it's a different thing just to do a scene or like this shot is just three lines and we're going to do that 10 times. And each time is as if it were for the first time. So it's challenging to do that. And then when it's done... Again, without more people there, you, you know, maybe the director will say like, you know, okay, that was good. We got it. But it's just not the same. It's a different kind of adrenaline. It's just different. And so I say all that to say how fun to work with someone with Robert who was fun, you know, who was just fun to work with. And so that helps helps that whole dynamic of keeping it fresh and having a good time and, you know, just feeling like this guy's fun. I like him. He's funny and he's cracking jokes in between and he's making it easy for me. And I can't speak highly enough about him. He was terrific. Hey, everybody. We'll get right back to the interview in one second. But I wanted to remind you all to check out Trek Untold over at Patreon. Patreon is the best way to directly support creators of things you like through a monthly subscription of an amount that you can choose. Trek Untold has a few different tiers already with different benefits, ranging from early access to episodes, the ability to ask a future guest questions, exclusive merchandise, and other bonuses that I'd love to offer, but first I need to grow that Patreon community to do that. Trek Untold has been around since mid-2020 and has grown a ton since then, thanks to listeners and viewers like you. Through a platform like Patreon, you can help me keep improving the quality of each episode and keep bringing you new interviews with folks that make the Star Trek universe what it is. If this community can grow more over on Patreon, I can offer new perks like watch parties, exclusive Trek Untold episodes, being able to directly interact with guests, and other things, but in order to do that, I need to know my audience wants these things. 
The best way to tell me what you want is by supporting us on Patreon. So please check us out at patreon.com slash trekuntold today and become a bigger part of the Trek Untold family. And now back to the interview. Now, did you watch your appearances on TV when they first aired? I did. Did what do you yes. think? Are you the kind of person that likes to watch what you've done, or do you prefer not to look at it? Um, I like to watch what I have done because I'm usually curious about how it was cut. When you're working, even if you know where the camera is, which you do, you don't necessarily, you know, sometimes they'll say, hey, just so you know, we're really tight, so don't move too much. But no matter what, I mean, as a stage actress, I'm not focused on that stuff. So I like watching it to see um, there's almost always stuff that's cut. And you have to know not to take that personally, be it for time or whatever. So, yes, I do like watching what I've done. And I like watching, you know, there are times that I've seen things that I've thought, ooh, I, I here's something I don't like. I need to make sure I don't do that again. So I think that's all good. That's all good information. I was very pleasantly surprised to see my coverage in Displaced. I, even when Robert was there, there, like there was one shot right before he left. They just, this is actressy stuff. I got a lot of good coverage and I thought, Star Trek, man, like what? How could, they're on me? Because again, a lot of times as a guest star, You'll be working really hard and you'll have a great scene and all the coverages of the other person. I did this show a few years ago, Strange Angel. Do you know it? And I got to go in super early. I talk about, and they did a 1940s. You like, I show people this picture. They can't even believe it's me. My hair was unbelievable. And the, the curls and the look and the makeup and the it, it was hours. It was so much fun. My call was at like four in the morning downtown. And I shot this whole scene. And when I saw it, I had almost no coverage. And I was so disappointed. There's nothing I can do about it. I remember we shot the scene and we did the master. And then we did the series regulars, like my point of view of their close-ups. And then I... I was thinking like, okay, and then now it's going to be mine. And then they just said, okay, great lunch. We can say goodnight, Deborah. Thank you very much. And I thought, we're not even going to, we're not going to shoot this. And they didn't like, it was unimportant. They had to have the series regulars. I have said so much to your short question. I'm so sorry. Um, I was very excited that Look, I'm being honest. I was happy that I got that kind of coverage in Displaced. I didn't expect it. I didn't know it would be like that. And there's some really cool, fun shots. And sometimes I'm happy and sometimes I'm concerned and sometimes I'm brave and sometimes I don't like, yeah, I was very, very happy. The others, look, they're very quick. Like you say, you can't blink. The others are kind of more like, oh, but I'm part of the Star Trek world. How wonderful. I'm grateful for that job. I still got to go work at Paramount. I still got to get in hair and makeup and be with great people and do it. I still got paid. But Displaced is, yes, a whole different ball of wax to be able to have done what I did in that. Super exciting. I'm super grateful. Wonderful memories. I'm really happy with how it all turned out. I. 
I don't have anything bad to say about it. You can say something bad about it. I won't be upset. But yeah, I loved it. Well, the last thing I want to talk about with this playlist actually is uh, I believe you got to do your own stunt in this one too, right? Because yes. as we alluded to, you took a phaser blast to the chest, which, uh, you know, honestly, have, have you a little bit worried. I was like, oh no, she got to make it. But luckily I have this thing called IMDB. Um, but yeah, and you took a phaser blast to the chest and you got to crumble down and die. Not, not die, but get stunned. So, um, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about doing your own stunt on that show. Because for me, you know, I was watching that too. And I'm like, that's an interesting way to take a phaser shot. Because other times I've seen stunt people, you know, go flying backwards. And you just kind of like squish yourself on down. <laughs> Yeah, I talked to the director about that, um, and I knew I was going to do it, and it took me right back to theater and different movement classes and whatnot. And I had remembered um, learning, doing a feint. Do you hear that sound in the background? Okay, I'm going to go back just in case. It took me back to theater classes, and I remember learning how to do a, a feint and the idea of like, if you lose control, if you can't stand how, how, how to get down to the ground. And I talked to the director about it and found out like, actually that makes perfect sense for being stunned. That would completely work. So that's what I did. I just went back to my theater days. So to like hit the ground first with your knees and then, you know, from there, uh, it was, and even that was totally fun to do that on a TV show, you know, on a set. I loved it. <laughs> it's definitely a fun thing to do to get phasered. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And to shoot. Like I, you, you know, yeah, you to shoot. yeah, I had to shoot the bad guy, which of course, you know, that's all done in post. So you're just, no. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, I almost fooled you for a second with that one. <laughs> you did. You did. Because I didn't know when I was on it, they explained to me. Um, so, and you know, it's a funny feeling, feeling just to hold the phaser super fun to see it done again. I will always love the magic of movies and TV and Hollywood. And then to see it come out in the sound and the, all that stuff. Yeah. That was really fun. Well, Deborah, the most important question is after three episodes, why didn't we see more of Ensign Lane? That is a great and important question to which I, it's not that I don't remember. I do not have an answer. Um, and again, maybe this is something for all of your fans. They may know something that I don't. I was, um, like I say, I was surprised that I did as little as I did after Displaced. But I, I think I was more surprised that that was it. But again, I can't reiterate enough. Like you said, showbiz baby, you don't know. You get a job, you're thrilled. It, your stuff doesn't get cut out, meaning you're going to get residuals. If it airs again, you're thrilled. It does air again, you're thrilled. They ask you back. I mean, you can't call the kettle black. This is this is the nature of the business. My very good friend calls it, again, the business of show. What were the decisions that were made in the script room? Why didn't I come back? I don't know. I, I have no idea. I don't, I, I don't take it personally. Would I have loved to have gone back? Yes. Am I angry that I didn't? No, because again, I'm honest about everything I just said. When you get to work, it's wonderful. I don't know what those reasons were that I didn't go back. Um, I don't. I, I don't think it was because I did a bad job. I mean, I don't think they would have had me back if I had. So I don't know, and I and I would be curious to know from you or from all of your fans what the reasons are. You guys know more about 
duensins, you know, come and go and disappear. Typically so I do, say, yeah. what do you think is the reason? I don't think it's anything personal. I think, like you said, they they have ensigns come and go. It's that kind of thing. Because I've, I've talked to folks who similarly were like, you know, an ensign or a lieutenant or whatever. They basically did one episode and you never see them again. So it's kind of yeah. just the nature of showbiz. Uh, the fact that you got like three episodes is kind of a, of a big, a uh, little bit of an anomaly, really. Because I've talked, really? to, like, I've had on the show here. I'm thinking of like Alex Datcher off the top of my head, but I know I've had other folks. So I'm like, you know, wow, they gave him like a lot of lines, a lot of close ups, pivotal role in the episode, but they never showed up again. So the fact that you got like this many is actually pretty awesome. I feel that way for real. And then, did you see the link I sent you to Ten Ensigns? I did. You got on a what culture list? That was amazing. That made me feel so good. I can't tell you. Like, how many ensigns have there been? How many to be on that list of ten? I really, I felt like a great big movie star when I saw that. That was that was really really neat. So yeah, I don't know why I didn't go back, but it is not something like I don't even think about that when I think about Star Trek. About my, I, I don't have that negative. That I, I don't. I think about. That's kind of my personality too. But I think about what I did and what I got to do. And I just don't know. But there's something helpful about understanding the business. You cannot take it personally. You can't. If you do, you're in the wrong business. It, you know what I mean? Um, I'm thrilled that I got to do three. And whatever indoors that you are talking about that there is, I am so grateful for that. It's cr- like with all the crazy things in this world today, things like this, it can't go away. It can't be taken away. I'm a part of this family. And also to witness it really firsthand at the convention in Vegas really made me realize what a big deal all of this is. So, Deborah, you told me when we first started talking here about a certain family connection you had with a certain legendary writer by the name of Harlan Ellison. Uh, I got to hear what's your Harlan Ellison stories? Well, First, I'll say, I think whatever you've heard about the bad side, 99.9%, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He was a character. He spoke his mind. He was unfiltered. And he was also a sweet, smart, loving, interesting, wonderful person. I got to have lots of dinners with him home out um he loved jimmy cagney he was a movie fan he and my stepdad grew up together in cleveland and um but yes he was a character he said things that were that seemed shockingly uh inappropriate <laughs> and yet he was a kind person and a smart person. Um, you know, funny you should mention TCM, of which obviously I am a humongous fan. I had a friend over for dinner one night with my family and Harlan and my friend Stevie is a huge TCM fan. And by fluke, who knows why this random thing, Harlan gave Stevie a TCM keychain that night because <laughs> we just all love classic movies so very very much yeah i he was he was wonderful um he he was great and he had so 
his following was insane. I mean, people just loved him. And look, people respect someone who's going to tell it as it is. You know, like even I'm saying to you, like, I don't remember that, uh, you know, Harlan told it like it was and how he felt about it. And um, I feel very lucky that I knew him. Also, side note, he had gorgeous skin. He had like the most beautiful skin I had ever seen. Very light. And it sounds crazy to say that like something seemed angelic about him, but it was. Yeah, I really loved him. This follow up's going to kind of come a little bit out of left field. If you know, you know. If you don't, you don't. But did he ever tell you the story about punching Frank Sinatra? No, he didn't. We did not talk about that story. Um, For anybody who so doesn't I, know, that's a little tease. They can Google that. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. I Yeah. So I can't give you any inside stuff about that. Um, but, you know, we, that's not something that we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and for folks who want to learn more about Harlan, and for you too, Deborah, if you don't know, he used to have a YouTube channel. So if you if you miss hearing him rant about things, I highly recommend you go to his old YouTube channel. You're going to find a, a treasure chest of Harlan. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, and you have another very big Star Trek connection on your resume, and this one came years after Voyager. You were on William Shatner's sitcom, Shit My Dad Says, along with Jonathan Sadowski and Mad TV alumni and two comedians whose work I really adore, Nicole Sullivan and Will Sasso. So uh, tell me about any run-ins that you had with the big Shat and what it was like doing Shit My Dad Says. Okay. Um, I actually got to do two episodes. I do a lot a lot of voiceover work, mostly commercials, but on that show, I did both roles were voiceover. Um one was a personal assistant on the intercom system, and the other was the um, uh, car. Uh, the on-star representative? Yes, exactly. In the words of Patton, I read your book. <laughs> um, I um again, not to be a name dropper, I, I'm uh, very close friends with um, especially one of the creators of Will and Grace. I'm friends with both of them, but particularly one. We all met, and this friend of mine, Stevie Paymer, to whom Harlan gave the keychain, was on, uh, he's an actor and a writer, and he was on a sitcom that they had before Will and Grace called Boston Common. And that's where we all met, and we're friends to this day. I haven't spoken with David since this morning. And I was lucky enough to... Uh, work on quite a few of their shows, including Shit My Dad Says. Now, having said that, I want you to know that, like with the reincarnation of Will and Grace, some often you still have to audition because the studio and the network, they want to approve you. But it doesn't hurt to have someone help you get in to get that audition, even if you have representation or you don't. So that's that story. But I say all that to say, I think that William Shatner knew that I am friends with the creators of that show. In fact, I know he did because he had, uh, and I think this is something he has done quite a bit, a charity event in Burbank at the Equestrian Center where he had a very intimate, and he does these, a a bit of a horse show and then a, a small dinner where Cheryl Crow sang to entertain people and to raise money. And, you know, Stevie and I went with David Cohen, the, the one of the creators. Like, he knew that I'm just friends with these people. This is, you know, part of the mishpucha in my life. So I say all that to say, 
Was he on different behavior around me? I don't know. Maybe not. I, I found him to be wonderful and lovely and terrific. Uh, again, like Harlan, maybe someone who says it like it is. Um, I thought he was really good on that show. I think he's good, period, William Shatner. Like, I love watching him on The Twilight Zone. He He's very effortless. And again, speaking of, he's very honest. I just believe him. And he never seems actory to me. I believe what he's saying is true. I loved just being on the set and kind of watching him. So for me, it was all wonderful. If you want a fun, good Shatner story, I know I had heard this, that during a network um, rehearsal, which is often like the day before you shoot, that's kind of a big deal because the network's there and it's got to move along quickly and you, you kind of do it fast. That some, I think someone who maybe was an extra on that episode, as they were moving in between scenes from, you know, this set to this set, had his script and said to him, Mr. Shatner, may I have an autograph? And I guess he said to him, not now, asshole, <laughs> which I think is really funny, but it's kind of true. Like, that's just not the time, you know, to ask for it. Um, everybody on the set was really nice. I was sad that the show didn't go longer. I thought it was, you know, fun and interesting that here's this big internet success that, oh, let's make it into a show. It seemed to make sense for a sitcom. I thought it was amazing that they got Shatner to do it. That seemed terrific. Uh, so really fun. I hope I'm not boring because everything you ask me, I'm like, oh, that was great. That was wonderful. <laughs> Everybody was so nice. I mean, but How dare you have nice memories of things? You are the worst for having good times on sets. How dare you? <laughs> it was fun. I loved it. And, you know, doing voiceover, the older I get, I get more. Uh, I I like memorizing lines less and less. <laughs> and I'll go over it a million times. Like, I've got it, but I'll go over it again. Voiceover is a dream, you know, to be on a set or to be in a booth and read stuff. It's really lovely. So it's. Yeah, really kind of a low pressure job and uh, a lot of fun. Really enjoyed doing it. And yes, and that was something else I thought, oh, well, if you have to talk about something at the convention, talk about shit my dad says people are going to be into working with William Shatner. So that was good. All right. So, Deborah, a more recent role that you did was five episodes on how to get away with murder. And I have to admit, I don't really know a ton about this show here, but I do know that this was a pretty big dual role for you to play because you were Agent Pollock and Sarah Gordon and also a fairly antagonistic type of character. So, I mean, had you ever done a part like this before? Because it feels like looking at your resume, you haven't. No, I said. This is what I say about that role. I've never played like a bad person on TV in my life. Um, I'm always, I mean, I'm usually like specifically nice, warm, bubbly, kind, or at least, you know, even in Voyager, like a good person and um, reliable and responsible and all those things. That's just how I'm cast. And to your point about the dual role, it kind of makes sense because it was a surprise that what happens but the original audition was sarah who was um confused innocent kind and they did say that it might recur 
But again, in this business, you never know. Is it going to recur? Is it not going to recur? I was thrilled to get that one episode. My The scene was with Viola. One of the scenes in the first episode was with Viola Davis, but it was on two sides of a shut door. So I didn't know if I was going to get to work with her because technically I didn't have to. We weren't on camera together, but I did, as it turned out, which was amazing. Lovely. Um I had worked with her husband in theater years before and had kind of lost track of him. And I'm now completely back in track with, I mean, it it was so amazing. And when I mentioned to Viola that I had worked with Julius, that was it. Her eyes lit up. She just, they love each other so much. The fact that I knew him, it, it was just fantastic. Anyway, back to your question. I had no idea at that point, by the way, major spoilers coming up. If anybody is watching, is streaming how to get away with murder and hasn't watched it all, you can just know I'm going to tell you major spoilers. I always say my first bad person, I was a killer. I got to kill a series regular. And I remember my agent said to me, I've never represented anybody who killed a series regular. And not only did I kill him, but I beat him to death with a poker, with a, with a iron fire poker that while he like bled out and it's crazy again you never know I was grateful that I got that one episode it turned into five it was nuts I got to go to the rap party they like whisked me off in a a car my best friend flew in to go with me and they put me on the red carpet and it was all kind of secretive because at that time those episodes hadn't aired yet so I'm sure people are thinking like, well, she's got such a small thing. Why is she like the whole thing was was lovely. I'm unbelievably grateful for that job. Definitely one of my favorites. I have a few favorites, but definitely one of them. And um, and super fun. And man, to work with Viola. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Incredible. Talk about movie stars. Yeah. I mean, meanwhile, though, I'm just here like imagining, you know, bubbly, happy Deborah just bludgeoning somebody to death with a fire poker. And I'm just imagining like after they were done with the first take, you're like, yeah, yeah that was fun. Let's do it again. What did my Vi- yeah, Viola said something one day in the makeup trailer. I don't know. I came in and I was just like, oh, how is everybody? How was your weekend? What's going on? What's happening? And I remember she said something like, so upbeat and bubbly and adorable for a straight damn murderer. <laughs> But yeah, I think that's why I got it because of that dichotomy. Oh, and I want to tell you, Domaine Davis, look her up. Unbelievable director. She directed that episode. I I was so grateful for her because I thought like, I don't know how to kill somebody. <laughs> like, what is this? She was so helpful. And I got to tell you, <laughs> cheesiest thing anyone's ever said on this podcast. I thought about Cagney when I killed him. Like, it's just easy. It's just easy. I dropped when I dropped the poker and walked away. I was channeling like Cagney, especially in Public Enemy after he kills Putty Nose and then he wants to call his girlfriend about dinner. Like it's it's nothing. It's just nothing. One other thing, if we have time, if not, you'll cut this out. When I found out I was the murderer and this whole thing and all of a sudden I'm an agent, Agent Pollock, I'm at the table read and I'm sitting next to a writer. And I say to her, before we read, can I ask you something? I don't know who I am. What? Who? Am I Sarah? Am I like, who's my, like, to your point, 
what's your name? Am I Agent Pollock? Am I, who am I? I like, because I don't even know. She said, don't worry. It's a really good question. Okay. You were, and you are an agent in the FBI. That's who you really are. But the bad guys, the Castillos, they found you there. They brought you out. You became Sarah. You did the fake thing at Viola's place being lost. Now you're, and I was like, okay. So I said to her, have you seen The Departed? She said, yes. I said, I am Matt Damon in The Departed. And she goes, you are Matt Damon in The Departed. And I thought, now this makes perfect sense. And then I was telling the girls in um, wardrobe because they were giving me suits. I was like, I have to look like Matt Damon in The Departed. And that's what I need. But even when I had the script, I didn't know. I didn't even know uh, who I really was. So again, if someone finds out who Ensign Lang really is and has a name, let me know. But I thought that was a fun story too. But see how movies helped me under, movies help you understand life. Who doesn't like The Departed, right? I'm just thinking now, if anybody heard this interview out of context, they're just going to think you're like the schizophrenic killer who thinks that they're Matt Damon. That's right. Please listen from the beginning. I'm the most normal person you know. <laughs> I mean, you're in Hollywood. I don't know about that, but we'll... Yeah, right. That's true. Yeah, and, you know, this show has a huge following, but for me, that I think that's where my line of questioning ends, just because I don't know the entire show. But I do want to point out a lot of my research for today's interview came uh, from Why Is Your Podcast on Dead Girl's Phone? So shout out to that show. Shout out to Niles. You did that show, I think, like two years ago or more. Something like I that. did. And I'm so glad you're bringing that up because I hope everybody checks out that podcast. Um, Niles has done an amazing job and he has some pretty great guests on there and I loved doing it. He's got writers, he's got actors. Um, he is heartfelt like you guys are. Did you, did you by any chance watch that episode? Cause we talk a lot about Anthony Rapp, which was I did. Really yeah. Fun. I heard it all up. That was where my research came from. So oh, I love times. it. Cause that is another favorite job of mine being in a, um, uh, a pilot with Tony Lobianco and Anthony Rapp and Lisa Neff, by the way, do you know who she is? Uh, yeah, I've had her on the show a few times, I think. Yeah, I love it. So she was my sister. He was my stepbrother. We rehearsed at the Ed Sullivan Theater where the Beatles worked. And I yeah, I'm really glad you watched uh, Niles. And thanks for shouting out everybody. Check it out. Great, great. And he's like you. I mean, he's passionate. He's lovely. Everyone loves him. So it's a thrill to talk to people like you guys who are passionate about what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're a fan of How to Get Away with Murder and want to hear more about it, hear from the stars, check out Why Is Your Podcast on a Dead Girl's Phone. And really, Niles, if you're listening, I hope you do find this. Get back to work. Okay. It's, you only did like 12 episodes. You got to get back to work. Don't don't give up. Keep going. He wants to so much. And I he will listen to this because I'm going to like message him as soon as we're done and let him know that we talked all about it. I bet you made his day by bringing that up. That's fantastic. Thank you for doing that because he is a honey. That's so sweet that you did that. Thank you. Well, Deborah, as this interview comes to a conclusion today, I want to wrap things up here with my lightning round questions that I know I've teased you off camera and you're like, oh, yay, they're going to be fun. <laughs> no, these are the worst questions. Okay. Uh, so here we go. Best day on a set and worst day on a set. Do See, that, that face right there tells me uh, you're like, oh, God, I wasn't prepared for this. I wasn't prepared for this. All right, is this Star Trek or is this anything? Anything. Anything you've ever done. Anything I've ever done. Oh, my gosh. It's really hard for me to say the best and the worst. 
I have to be lame and say one of the best and one of the worst. So I'm I'm going to be lame and say one of the best was killing Asher on how to get away with murder because it was so outside of my comfort zone and who I was. And the idea that that turned into five episodes and was such a great, long, fun day working with Matt, who was so it was it was just a great day. So that is high up there. Although I did just mention Anthony Rapp and that show with Tony Lobianco, that would be high up there too. Um, worst day on a set. I'm trying to think if I have a something bad that happened on a set. Like, was I ever, I was never fired. I was never let go. Okay. I'm not going to give any specifics, but I'm going to tell what it is without saying any names or uh, saying what the show was. I was working and everything was down because an actress was having a temper tantrum and would not come to the set. And everything shut down, which is the worst thing that can happen. And I remember thinking, if I had the chance to be a series regular on a show like this, I would not do this. I just wouldn't do it. That's my answer. I hope I did okay. I'll take it. Okay. Now, how about most challenging job that became the most rewarding? You know, it's funny that we're talking so much about Voyager and how to get away with murder, but they are both, they were both very challenging and possibly, and both so unbelievably rewarding. Voyager, because if you haven't realized this by now, I'm a very people person. I'm very emotional. And, you know, the dryness of it, you know, of keeping it interesting and being engaged in that techno babble and the dryness in all those words um, was challenging, very different for me. Again, so many takes with nobody. You could hear a pin drop. Was that great? I don't know. There's no reaction. There's no anything. Okay. Director says it's good. It's good. Just very, very challenging. It's hard to compare the rewarding factor of being a part of the Star Trek family with anything for sure. So that is definitely one of them. Having said that also, yes, killing someone and having five episodes on a major primetime network broadcast and streaming show with a star of the ages like Viola Davis, who can do seemingly anything to work with her, to be with her, to collaborate with her, to sit and eat snacks and make jokes, to get to do that, that was all, you know, I'm a movie fan. I'm a theater fan. So they're close. I I'm I, I feel like I'm going to get an F on the lightning round because A, I'm not lightning and B, I'm, my answers are mushy, but I'm trying to be truthful. Okay. What's next? All right. You're, you're doing good so far. I'm not going to agree, okay, you, yet, but you're doing good. Uh, how about most memorable piece of advice you received from somebody that you still think about today? This is okay. Someone in my life who's I'm very close with, I'm not going to mention her name, but the advice was to forget about right and wrong and to focus on truth, your truth, which is probably why I haven't like lied and made up some answers. I'm just like, I don't know. That's been a very, very, very valuable piece of advice to me that I think about a lot. Good answer. And okay. uh, we're going to end this now with hopefully the easiest question I'm going to ask you today here. Uh, but what's the best thing, Deborah, about being a part of the Star Trek universe? 
Ugh. The family of the fans. Before I went to the convention, I was a little bit, I wasn't sure what to expect. And after spending, what, four days there? You know, back to the beginning, we talked about passionate, obsessive, whatever. And I mentioned Cleveland baseball, but especially classic films. It's so lovely that even like, okay, so maybe I'm not a Trekkie like they are, but I have that feeling about something. And so I understand their feeling about Star Trek. The idea that that cannot go away, that's never going to go away. I got to do these things that can't be changed. I hope I do more conventions. The joy of that, the things that people came up to my table and said to me of any episode, anything, you don't know. You don't know how you're going to affect someone. You don't know what moments they loved. I heard about someone was in the hospital watching this. I heard about, like, there. the older you get, I think you see, there is nothing more important than what I'm talking about right now. This goodness, this connection, this joy, this love. I know it sounds very like 70s hippy dippy. It's not. This is, nothing else is important. The obviously our health, but the things that bring us together, that we share, that make us think, that make us feel, that make us live, that make us learn, that make us want to reach out, find out more, do more. This is, I swear, part of the passion and love of the Star Trek family that I can't believe that I am a part of, that people want to talk to me and ask me questions and make little like baseball trading cards of me and send it to me and say, will you sign this? It's, it is an amazing gift that I have been given with a lot of luck because there's a lot of luck in this industry of getting cast in the first role and that they, like you say, wrote displaced the way they did. Um, it can never go away. And I'm eternally grateful. And I can always know this in my life that I've had this and I've done it. And that's how I feel. And thank you. And thank you for helping to perpetrate that and bring so many I've seen. You have thousands of people who come to you to see it and share it. And it's it's lovely. There's nothing bad about it. There's nothing wrong about it. It's lovely. I'm sorry I got so sappy. That's how I feel. <laughs> well, it, it's truth. true. I mean, yeah, and you are a part of the Star Trek family. You're a part of the Star Trek Mispucha. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a great family to be a part of. And Deborah, you know, I want to thank you again just for coming by, telling us all your Star Trek stories and everything else about your life and career. A lot of real awesome little tidbits there. Uh, and, yeah, I wish all the best to you. And uh, it's never too late for Ensign Lane to pop up again somewhere. Maybe she got promoted. I mean, down the line. It's amazing. And I just want to say thank you so much for inviting me and for taking the time. It's, I really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's show. Thanks again for checking out Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please follow Trek Untold on social media, where you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, among others, all at Trek Untold. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube for the video versions of this show at youtube.com slash at Trek Untold. And subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to the audio version on. We always appreciate likes, shares, comments, thumbs up, ratings, and reviews, and whatever you can do to help spread the word about this podcast and inform other Trekkies about why they need to check this show out. If you're able to financially support this show, visit patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn about the different ways you can contribute to keeping this show going full speed ahead. 
Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.